0: What's going on, Warriors and Battle Buddies? This is Nick Krantz, and you're listening to Drew and Terry Neiman on A Battle Within. Here we go with episode number 161. For today's conversation, we had to go without Terry, unfortunately. She was having a bad case of brain drain. Despite that, we were able to offer a fantastic conversation with Heather Rendulic, This special warrior takes us through her journey of suffering five strokes as well as having to experience an additional brain surgery at the ripe old age of 22. These happenings occurred back in 2011 and she's been after healing ever since. Heather takes us through those hard times in the beginning, the ongoing recovery and desire to have a positive outlook despite the harsh reality of the situation. Heather speaks open and honestly about the love of her parents, as well as her husband, Mark, who sees Heather for who she is. Since her injury, Heather has developed a career in human resources, got married, and written a book called Headstrong Through Life, Love, and Brain Surgery, with some cameos in each chapter from her parents. I love that they are included in the book to tell their side of the story as the story progresses. Want to read Heather's book? Well, we got a copy, screenshot this episode, tag us, and lay it up in your stories. First one we see, who does, we'll get that book sent off to them. Before we get to it, folks, please don't forget to please support the show by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if that's not your thing, or you want to help out in a different way, you can visit buymeacoffee.com backslash within. We can use the help there as well. Supporting the show there also makes you eligible for some benefits, including some one-on-one time with Terry and myself and some goodies that will get off to you. For those who are already donated, as always, thank you. It truly does make a difference. Okay, Warriors and Battle Buddies, here we go. Let's get after it with Heather.
1: A Battle Within is about Terry and Drew's life experiences and those of their guests living with and healing from traumatic brain injuries with an emphasis on post-concussion syndrome. The conversations are real, raw, and uncensored from both the warrior and caregiver perspectives. From time to time, medical professionals are offered as well. This platform is intended to be a useful way to create awareness around the invisible injury and to help those in the battle. Whether you are the warrior or the battle buddy, the stories and resources offered here take aim at helping you in your own journey. Join us each week for meaningful conversations that truly do matter for those affected. Let's battle together.
0: Okay, here we go. We are rolling. Unfortunately for today's conversation, Terry's not able to join us as she is not feeling well, but I didn't want to leave our new friend, Heather Rendulic is how I believe you say her name. Is that correct, Heather? Yes, that's correct. Okay, she is on the program today, and she's going to tell us her story a little bit. As always, we'll give you a little bit of background about Heather as we dig into the conversation. So here we go. So Heather is joining us from her hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, where she lives. And she's going to be talking to us today about the five strokes in 11 months that she went through, as well as one brain surgery that she had to endure back in 2011, when she was just 22 years old as a college student. She's also going to share a little bit with us today about the healing process and how she is doing today. Lastly, she's going to tell us about this wonderful book that she has written called Headstrong Through Life, Love, and Brain Surgery that she has written and was published a few years back that she had to document her story, and she wanted to share it with the world. I will say, Me being a battle buddy, I found the part that is very intriguing in all the chapters. Mom and dad also threw in at the end to talk about what their experience was like as Heather was going through her own experience. Because as we all know in this world, the person who is injured is not the only one who's going through it. So I was really intrigued and that is a big part of why Heather's on the program today. Now, fun fact is I have the book in front of me, and we will be giving it out to one of the listeners at some point, but we'll talk about that later on. Some fun facts about Heather is she's gotten her college degree and married post-injuries, and she has developed a career in the human resources world. She loves horseback riding, dogs, running, and finds writing to be quite enjoyable as well. And she is a firm believer that one must find the beauty in the chaos. How's that, Heather? Did I miss anything of significance in introducing you? Nope, you covered it very well. Great. So obviously, Heather, you're here to talk to us at A Battle Within because you've had a brain injury years ago. And that's kind of our niche, right? That's what we talk about here. We tell the folks all the good, the bad, the ugly, and the success stories. So... Could you begin the conversation off today by telling us about what you went through back there in 2011, what kind of happened immediately there, and what are some of the immediate after effects, please?
1: Absolutely. I So back, I was in my early 20s. I was home from college on Christmas break, and I randomly had a brain hemorrhage. Um, I had some, like, pins and needles tingling down my left side of my body, which prompted me to go to the emergency room, which then by some certain tests, they found I had had this brain hemorrhage. And after a lot of more tests, they diagnosed me with what's called a cavernous angioma. And basically in layman's terms, it's a cluster of really weak blood vessels. And these lesions can be found in the brain and spinal cord. I had mine on my right thalamus, which sits a little bit above the brain stem. So right now, since it's a fairly rare condition, they don't have any current treatments. The only cure that they know of is brain surgery to remove the lesion. However, the first few neurosurgeons I met with said they would not touch my lesion because of the location in my brain. It was considered inoperable. So I was sent on my merry way. To live my life as best I can and just hope it doesn't bleed again. <laughs> and it bled five times over eleven months. Um, the fifth and final one was a massive stroke that happened in my sleep and completely paralyzed left side of my body. It was at that point they rushed me to the ICU. They said, "We this lesion is too aggressive. We have to remove it or else it's going to kill you." So I had a nine-hour craniotomy just two months after my twenty-third birthday.
0: Wow, that's pretty intense, that's for sure. So you have this nine hour craniotomy surgery to basically save you, right? Is that really what it comes down to?
1: Yes, it was to save me. yeah, it was to remove the lesion, try and, you know, save my life at that point. He the doctor really didn't think I would live much longer because it the last two bleeds happened only two weeks apart. So it was getting more and more aggressive as time went on. And he was afraid, you know, another one, I was, my brain was getting so damaged at this point that, you know, and it's such a vital part of the brain that damage isn't good. So,
0: well, what did it leave you with? So you had the the surgery there and you said you were paralyzed. If I heard you correctly on the left side of your body, right? Yes. So. How long after the surgery did you remain in a hospital slash rehab?
1: I spent about two months um, in the hospital and then I moved to an outpatient or an inpatient rehab hospital for about a month where I started to like work on walking again. I was still paralyzed in a wheelchair Um, Just learning, you know, how to live. And luckily, my parents and I are very close. And as you mentioned, they helped write parts of the book. They um, I was able to go home with them. And my mom was my primary caretaker until about it was probably almost a year and a half after the final bleed that I was able to walk unassisted.
0: So it took you a year and a half to get to the point that you could walk all by yourself. Yes. How did you have to work at that? Did that take something where you were going to PT or something of that nature on a daily basis? How how long did that, you know, what was that like?
1: It was a daily basis. So five days a week I was going to PT and OT, but then on the weekends I was doing exercises at home. I was very committed to doing everything I could each and every day to relearn how to walk. I would, I remember I had a cane and I was like doing laps around my parents first floor of their house. And each day I would try and do at least one more lap than I did the day before. And, um, it was a long process. I mean, they, I remember my PT once said to me that recovering from a stroke like that, that he equated it to watching grass grow and, you know, sometimes you get these big milestones where like you wiggle a toe or you move a certain way that you hadn't before. But most of the time, it's a very slow process. And especially as a girl in her early 20s, it couldn't come fast enough.
0: Right. Well, I, I can understand that. So how are we today? Is that was that the main physical attribute that you lost? I
1: still don't have functional use of my left hand. Okay. Yeah, I can move it a little bit. And actually there's, I was just involved in a clinical trial. I'd like to, if we have time mention to talk about, I have a spinal cord stimulator now that they're trying on stroke victims to help with arm and hand weakness. And it has helped me a lot, but we can go into that more later if we can. I don't want to stray away from the story, but it's still a daily struggle. I still am disabled if you think about it, there's a lot of things we need two hands to do every day. Mm-hmm. And I joke that I'm living one handed in a two handed world because I am and I have to plan everything I do around me not being able to use my left hand. Like recently, my husband and I were at a um, a wedding and they had a buffet. And if you think about it, like that's like my worst nightmare because I can't hold the plate in one hand and scoop the food in the other. And so luckily I've been blessed with an amazing husband who knows this and he'll hold the plate for me. And I scoop for both of us since both his hands are full, but you know, it's things like that, that I I still struggle with. I I no longer do OT. I do try and do as much as I can at home, but I, I don't want to say I gave up, but I just, you can only do so much and then you kind of go crazy about it. So I, I'm very lucky. I drive. I work full time. We talked about it. I graduated from college, but it's still something I struggle with.
0: Well, that's fair. So what about in terms of the emotional and the cognitive side? What did it leave you with there and how are you doing today?
1: So initially, um, cognitively, I had some issues with short term memory uh, nothing. It wasn't major. I, I was very lucky in my personality. That was one of the things they were worried about. They thought my personality was going to change. I mean, my husband might say I'm more stubborn than I ever was, but I don't notice that. The only thing cognitively I notice still to this day is I deal I still have neuro fatigue. You know, I work and if I'm, you know, doing talks like this or it can really wear me out and then I'm, I'm done for the rest of the day. And, and, you know, people don't like people who haven't had brain injuries, don't understand that neuro fatigue and it can get overwhelming. And I, I don't like crowds. I get very like overstimulated. That's still here today as
0: well, but. Are you better in, in those situations though, those settings, even though you don't like the crowds, do you fare better?
1: I don't know if I'm better or I just know how to tolerate it or handle it. You know, like I know when I need to get out of a situation. So that's hard to answer.
0: Okay. I got a question to ask you kind of related to that with the crowds while we're at it. Do you have like a code word with your husband when you need to bail?
1: No, I just have a look that he knows <laughs> when I give him that look. It's and And he would say it's mostly when we're over at my in-laws, but... <laughs> Um, You know, there's there's lots of like kids and screaming and, you know, so I just know when it's time to find some quiet.
0: Okay. Now let me ask you this, because Terry has gotten to this point after her injuries. Are you able just to say no matter what the situation is, it's just simply time to go? Like you don't owe anybody an explanation or whatever else. It's just like, I'm going to, I got to pick up my toys and I got to go just cause it's time where maybe in the beginning you felt bad about it. You felt awkward, you know, that that may be the case or uncomfortable or anything like that.
1: I've gotten to the point that, yes, I can just say it's time to go. And I don't know if that's with age as well, that I just no longer am so worried about what people are going to think. But most of the people, I have a small circle. So, and I like it that way. And they know what I've been through. So they don't need an explanation. You know, when I say it's time to go, they know, but ultimately I would love to stay, but I can't. And, you know, they don't need any further explanation. Okay.
0: You also may mention that, your husband might have thought that your personality changed. Where did he fit in? Did he know you before this happened? No,
1: that was a little joke. He wasn't a part of it. I actually, well, I was married before. um, So that husband, my ex-husband would have said that, you know, maybe my personality changed a little bit because he was with me during the stroke. And then we got married two years after. Okay. So... And then we got divorced four years after we got married. So which will be four years in July.
0: Okay. Not to pry too much, but it is a question that we have to ask, you know, related to this was, do you feel that the divorce was related to your injury? Did it play a part?
1: I It could. I've, you know, I've had time over the last few years, to mull that over. I think it may have played a role okay. that our relationship dynamic changed and it became more I was the patient, and so he was seeing me in a different light. So, and I think we never fully recovered from that. Uh, I, But, you know, it's one of those things I might not ever know the real answer.
0: And that's okay, and I don't mean to pry too much with that, but also at the same time, we like to tell the truth around here. So, yeah, it, it does have, a, unfortunately, TBIs can have a really bad impact on marriages. So that's why I'm curious about it. And Seems like, though, you you got a good one going on now, though.
1: Yes, I am so lucky. And he, my husband, he's hard of hearing. So he's almost deaf actually. And so he has a disability and we just really, that's kind of how we connected. We actually worked at the same company at the time when we met and we had connected on our disabilities and working and what it's like. And he gets neuro fatigue just because he's so hard of hearing. It takes a lot of his mental energy to listen to people all day. So then at the end of the day, he's exhausted and he's been such a blessing. I mean, he's amazing. So, and he doesn't see me. He actually jokes. Um, I'm not one that I talk about my disability, like a lot in my personal life, but like, I'll make a comment like, Oh, I can't do that because of my hand or, you know, can you do this for me because I can't. And he's always like, no, like you can, like, I don't see that. Like he doesn't see a disability on me at all, which is amazing and a beautiful thing.
0: Okay. So you, you find that to be beautiful. That's fantastic. Well done. Yeah.
1: I do. I do. I, I see um, where some people might be upset about it, but I know it's not, he's not minimalizing. He's not, that's not his intention. It's just out of love. And he still gets like when I do get like emotionally frustrated, because I still have those days. And something I like to tell people is my book is very optimistic. And I give a lot of tips on how to get through living with a disability or live through recovering from a stroke. But it's not all sunshine and rainbows. And I talk about that in the book too that, you know, I still have really bad days where I get frustrated and I'm an emotional mess and this is unfair and whatever have you choice of words. And he, he will meet me there and support me through that. And it's not like at that point in time, he's like, Oh, like, you know, you don't have a disability, like get over it. You know, it's not in that tone Yeah,
0: right. the way he uses it. Now you also talk a little bit about the depression. Mm -hmm. So can you get into that a little bit and like how you have, in my opinion, The short period of time of knowing you, it seems like you're doing a pretty good job of beating that back. So can you talk to that a little bit too?
1: Yes. Well, I've had a lot of experience with depression. Unfortunately, I clinical depression has run in my family for generations. And I did get clinically depressed when I was in middle school. And I think I was like 11 or 12 years old I started seeing a therapist and I got on medication and I've learned a lot of tools and then having a stroke and having something so tragic happen to your life and that completely changes your trajectory. Some of the stuff is how I fight it back is I believe we choose happiness. I believe we choose the way we see the world. If you think about it, like looking out your window, like I can look out my window at my house right now and I can look across the street and there's a dead tree in my neighbor's yard. I could look at that dead tree and think, oh my gosh, like the world is dying and it's dark and it's scary and that tree's going to fall over on my house and it's going to kill me. Or like, yeah, you know, I could think of all these horrible things and then I'm going to get all this fear and anxiety and I'm going to be sad. Or I could look at, you know, the flower garden that's next to that tree that has all these beautiful spring flowers coming up and, you know, see like just the beautiful colors coming out of the ground and spring is around the corner now for us in Pittsburgh. So we're excited to thaw out from winter and that makes me feel warm and happy and summer's coming and I have a fun vacation and. You know, so I think it's just look, reframing your perspective and, and some days that's impossible and that's okay. And I want people to know that, that it's not all sunshine and rainbows and you can feel your feelings. I think it's very important to give yourself that, but just don't stay there. So let yourself feel the emotion, even if it's uncomfortable, but then try and refocus your perspective.
0: I think that's a great way of explaining it. Quite frankly, uh, Terry has very many of the same perspectives. She very much is a believer in that it is a choice, first and foremost. And a lot of the times, it's the way you speak even to yourself. And she asks herself sometimes when she gets in the dumps, would I talk to one of my friends this way? If the answer is no, then why am I talking to myself this way? So it's about the way you frame it. As you're speaking to that. So I personally think that that is 100% accurate in terms of like, it's the way you just see it. you have a choice there and you can either choose to enjoy the flowers or, or look at the tree that's dying is the way you put it. Good way of saying that. Feel like you're in a good spot there and it's all under control and whatnot these days?
1: It depends on the day when you ask me that question. Some days, actually yesterday, for example, I had a really bad day, just not revolving around my stroke. But I I do. I really I am very I have these tools. I've used them so long now that, you know, I rely on them. And sometimes then they become second nature. Mm -hmm. And so when I start going down that path of, you know, like Terry was mentioning, of you know, talking to yourself in an unkind way or viewing yourself in a bad light, you know, I know I know the signs and I can turn it around. I mean, I still have my moments, but I do think I have it pretty much under control.
0: You made another point that Terry makes too. It's like when the thoughts come or you have an emotional, whatever it is, to actually honor it, not just try to pack it up in a box and ignore it, but actually know it's there and sit with it for a while, but don't get stuck. So how are you able to do that?
1: I am a visual person and I visualize that I'm driving a bus, you know, I'm driving the bus of my own thoughts, my life, you know, I'm driving this bus and there are these bad thoughts that are sitting in the back of the bus. And when they come up to bug me, you know, I'm driving the bus, they're coming up and they're like tapping on my shoulder and trying to get me to turn the bus around or, whatever it may be and trying to bring me down, you know, I will acknowledge that they're there. I will sit there for a moment, let them say their piece, but I'm w- fully aware that what they're saying, I'm in control. I'm just allowing them here. And then I tell them you get to the back of the bus and strap yourself in and they go back there and I keep driving. And then the next one will come up, you know, sometime later and I have to do the same thing. But I really do think it's important that we don't just put them in a box and push them away because they will find their way back to the surface. And sometimes it accumulates and it becomes too much. So I think it's important that, we do allow ourselves because our feelings are our feelings. They're real. They're not rational. So we have to remember that. But we're, allowed, we're human. We're allowed to feel them because you know what? This sucks. Like we're allowed to say it sucks. We're allowed to say it's unfair, but just don't stay there. Don't stay looking at the dead tree.
0: Right. Fair point. Great segue, Heather. Well done. Tell us a little bit about your husband, Mark, and mom and dad, Lynn and Randy, who briefly spoke about how helpful they were, but it becomes evident in the book, especially with your parents, obviously, that they were instrumental. What were some things that they specifically did or didn't do along the way that actually made a big impact?
1: Wow, good question. Well, so my parents are amazing. I mean, that I wouldn't have gotten through what I went through without them. And I owe everything to them because they not only took me into their house and had 24 seven around the clock care, my mom waking up in the middle of the night to wheel me to the bathroom and wheel me back to bed. And she was my nurse and, you know, taking me to therapy every day, taking me to doctor's appointments, you know, they really, were such an integral part. Um, I think what did they do or didn't do is that yeah the love, I can't really even speak to how amazing it was to help me along my recovery because there were days that I wanted to give up. Yeah, And I wanted to just throw in the towel and say, you know what, I'll figure it out. This is just awful. I don't want to go anymore. And they were there to hold me, to cry with me, to feel that pain. I think it's so important that people acknowledge the pain that somebody's going through, because even if you don't understand it, some of us might be like, oh, well, like, you're going to be fine. So, it, you know, it's not the end of the world. You're alive. Like, sometimes people just want to focus on that, but you you need to acknowledge their pain because their pain is real and my parents always did that they acknowledged my pain they let me feel those bad emotions and then they loved me through it and you know but it wasn't like pushing me one way or another like if i would have thrown in the towel i think they would have probably let me cuz they had no idea what it was like what i was going through so I think the what they didn't do was they didn't try and sugarcoat everything. Some people, even now, almost 10 years after I meet people and they see me struggling with my left hand or something like that. Or I have, you know, I am walking, but I do have a bit of a gimp to my gait, which I don't care. I'm getting from point A to point B. I don't care what it looks like. But you know, some people like to comment on it or say, like, oh, like you know, what happened to you? And I like to joke that it's an old football injury. So (laughs) um, you do
0: live in Pittsburgh. So
1: (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But sometimes they're like, Oh, well, what you went through, like, it's a miracle that you're alive. And it is like, it really is. I'm not discrediting that I'm a very strong Christian. I know God saved my life that day. But it's kind of making me feel like you're minimalizing my pain, like my current struggle, like, you know what I'm saying? So that's what my family didn't do and still doesn't do that. I truly appreciate. What about
0: with Mark these days?
1: So Mark, I always joke. He is my left hand. He's my left hand man uh, around the house. I, I told you before that I love that. He doesn't see my disability the way I do, it helps me feel maybe in a little tiny bit. And I hate this word normal because of what is normal, but I feel a little bit more that way because he doesn't see it. Um, my ex-husband, we talked about earlier, I think really focused on it a lot. And so it's not, it's so refreshing to be in this side of a relationship that like doesn't see me for my disability and sees me for me, my, myself. and. You know, I told you about the buffet, like he knows Like we've gotten into like a a kind of dance together. We've gotten into a groove. We're in sync that like he knows where I need
0: help. It's unspoken. Yes.
1: And that that speaks volumes. I mean, that helps me because I hate asking. I Mm -hmm. my mom, if she was on here right now, she would tell you that I've been very stubborn and independent my whole life. And when I was a little kid, you know, she'd want to hold my hand across the street and I would bat it away and say, no, I do it. So that's always been my attitude. Like I do it. I do everything by myself. And sometimes I still do that, but Mark knows, okay, like, let me help you there. And so I hate asking people for help and I struggle with that. I've worked on it since my stroke and I've gotten a little bit better, but it's so hard. And it makes me sad sometimes. So he knows without me even asking, like, oh, can you get the can opener and open this can for me? Like without me asking.
0: Right. And I know one thing that your parents did do that they both hated and that was puzzles.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> parents both talk about that in the book. Just a little teaser there too. But one thing that I get that I got from like some of the feedback. Now, full disclosure, I did not read the whole book. I've read pieces of it up until this point, but. One thing that I was picking up with your dad, okay, and I kind of get this too from the chair that I sit in, is that there was so many times where he just felt helpless. He didn't know how really, how to help you other than to leave you be, but at the same time, it drove him nuts because as a man, your job is to be a fixer and you're in this in-between space that could actually drive you crazy. How do you think he was able to really adapt to that? Because it's not something you really adapt to unless you're kind of thrown into it. You know, it seems like he's a very patient man as well.
1: Yes, he is. And he found ways like when I, okay, for example, the day I was having brain surgery and it was nine hours long, like he couldn't be in the operating room luckily because I wouldn't trust him with a scalpel, but he, um, that has no medical training whatsoever, but he, you know, what he did, he would find, he would get creative. And that day, actually, when they were wheeling me into the OR, I turned around and I was like, well, what about my finals? Cause it was the week before my finals at college. And, you know, of course my family's like, Heather, don't even think about that right now. Like you need to get through this. Seriously. What are you thinking about? Well, so he spent the nine hours that I was in surgery, emailing all my professors at IEP and just letting them know what was going on, asking if they could just take an as-is grade, like up to that point of the semester. And there was one professor who said no, that I had to take this final. Well, we all knew that for at least a few months after, I wasn't going to be able to take a final. So he spent months emailing back and forth and talking to this professor. And eventually it was Christmas day that year, he got uh my professor to agree to an as is grade. And you know, so he found ways. Now I think how somebody can adapt to that, that's all life is, right? Is adapting to new circumstances, adapting to new changes. And it's hard, but I think you have to see that by not doing anything and just loving that person and supporting them is doing everything you can do.
0: Fair point. I've spoken to this before. So is Terry on the program where Terry's actually had to tell me to back up because she needed to do for herself. Right. Yeah. Were there any points like that between you and your dad?
1: Oh yeah. When I first was diagnosed, we were traveling the country, getting second opinions from different neurosurgeons and, you know, cause I was told it was inoperable, but I wanted to be sure that there wasn't somebody out there. And, you know, I wanted to make sure I was getting the best treatment possible. So we were traveling and my parents would go with us. And I remember like meeting with these neurosurgeons and this one had recommended a controversial treatment for cavernous angioma, which is gamma knife surgery, which is basically localized radiation. And it's controversial for these in the sense that it's mostly used in the UK, not much in America. And some doctors believe it actually makes them worse. Some say it helps. So, I remember like driving home. That was in Chicago. A neurosurgeon had recommended that for me and I was driving home with my parents and my dad was adamant on what I should do. And I had to just pump the brakes and say, listen, like I need time. This is a big, big decision Mm -hmm. and I need time to weigh my options um, because also at that same time, a neurosurgeon in Arizona had emailed, well, he had called me. I had sent out my scans. I never met him in person, but he did give me his opinion on my lesion. And he did say that he would do the surgery to remove it. And he thought he could be successful. So I have, I have these options now. Okay. I felt like I had my life in my hands. Do I, surgery potentially wind up severely disabled or dead do I get the gamma knife surgery, potentially end up severely disabled or dead, or do I not do anything and potentially end up severely disabled or dead? There was no clear answer on anything, you know, cause there's no guarantee, but I had to, um, and, and he respected that, you know, he just, he loves me. My dad ran his own marketing company for almost 30 years, so he was very good at strategic planning and like all this stuff. So he is very organized and he came to all these appointments with me and met all these surgeons and was able to give me from his dad perspective, what he wanted me to do. But then he knew when I voice, you know, okay, we got to let me make this decision. Yeah, I was
0: going to say he respected that it was your decision in the end. Mm-hmm. I did pick up on that in the book too. So kudos dad. Let's talk about this book a little bit further. Terry and I have had these wonderful opportunities over the years that we've been doing this program to meet so many people like yourself, Heather, who have something tragic like this happen. But then they kind of flip it around and even then there might be in a space where, you know, things aren't perfect or they're still hurting in whatever kind of ways, and you know, you spoke to that obviously about your left left side of your body. But they decide they want to do stuff to help people. You know, for us, it's this podcast, right? That's kind of how Terry and I give back to this community. Why the book? Why now? What pushed your buttons or motivated you to do it?
1: We had been talking about writing a book ever since my brain surgery. It's been kind of just like an informal discussion between me and my parents. Like, oh, we should really write a book about this. And you know, for years, we were just kind of pushing that around. And then I kept saying, well, it's not the right time because I'm still recovering. Or then I started working and, you know, I don't have time to do that or, you know, the energy really. And we came across a gentleman named Andrew Jobling. He resides in Australia actually, but he, we met him through a mutual friend who had, he had helped them write a book. And that's his whole business is he's a motivational speaker, he's a mentor, he helps people write books. And my dad had bought like a class he was offering. And you know, after the class, my dad and I set up a meeting and we were like, you know what, the time is now. And we just did it. And we, we figured if we're not going to do it now, like, you know, my husband and I want to start a family someday. Like if I don't do it soon, I'm never going to do it. Right? You know, especially if kids come along and, and my whole hope was, you know, what inspired me was I know so many people who go through such horrible things. Everybody does, you know, everybody goes through hard times in life. And it looks different for everyone. But one thing that is the same is we have a choice. So we cannot choose what happens to us, but what we can choose is how we react to those situations. So I was like, this is perfect to share my story, the tools I use to overcome a horrible situation that happened to me, but frame it in a way that it's not about cavernous angioma and stroke and brain surgery because obviously not everybody has those things but it's about you know just overcoming difficulties in life because we all have them that's something we can all agree upon and that's why it worked out so beautifully to pull my parents in to give their perspective as a loved one and a caregiver like you had mentioned earlier it's not just you know the directly person involved that goes through this stuff. It's their loved ones are going through it. And, you know, so we worked with Andrew, we started writing and a year and a half later, we were, we had a done published manuscript.
0: One question related to that. Was it mentally exhausting for you when you were actually in the work of it? Did you get there, brain drain, neuro fatigue, whatever you want to call it?
1: Yes and no. I mean, there were times But honestly, the majority of it just flew out of me. And Andrew has a program that like, it's so manageable. He calls it one word at a time. And his whole philosophy is just, just write. Even if it's just one word today, just sit down to write, make it a habit. And some days you might write one word. Some days you might write a thousand words. Like you just got to like see what happens. And it, to me, I was so passionate about my message that, cause I really want to give people hope. And then it just turned out like COVID happened and right when I was getting published. And so it was great timing. Cause people really needed that hope.
0: <laughs> I guess it's a fair point. Yeah. I guess, uh, Everything aligned in that perspective. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, just for the folks out there, you should know that Heather also does some speaking and she has a a website as well that she kind of has some videos and things like that on. And it talks to to her journey and some of the other things that she's doing in addition to the book. So I'll make sure I link that up in the show notes. All right. Now I'm going to give you another chance to help some folks out there, Heather. We ask this of all of our guests. The question I have for you is, Aside from finding the beauty in the chaos, which you've spoken to quite a bit in the book and whatnot, I would like to know one or two pieces of advice that you would offer to somebody else who's in the midst of their own battle within.
1: Absolutely. So I think something I touched a little bit about before is reframing your perspective or your focus, um, I think is really key on not being so focused on the bad and actually looking for good. And I know sometimes it can be super, super hard to find that good, but it's there. I promise you it's there somewhere. And to just try and think of it as a bigger picture, um, I think sometimes we get so like tunnel vision to like what we're going through that we can't see past it. But there is another side. You are going to get through it. And one thing I talk about a lot in my talks is to change or, I'm sorry, improvise, adapt and overcome. So that kind of analogy that I use is I have a certain route. I drive to work every day. I know this route by heart. I could drive with my eyes closed. I promise you, I don't do that. But I, you know, it's early in the morning, it's dark, I, you know, I can get to work, no problem. Well, just a couple months ago, they I was driving to work on my same route, and there was a road closure, because there's road construction everywhere around here these days. And I had a detour from my route. And so at first, I am so So frustrated. I'm anxious. You know, am I going to be late to work now? Where am I going? Am I going to get lost? I'm trying to get my GPS together. You know, I don't know where this is taking me out of my comfort zone. And well, that road closure lasted a while. So I learned how to adapt. I had to maybe wake up a little bit earlier so I could get my cup of coffee in and leave a little earlier to go this new route. And then by overcoming after I've been doing this route for so long, I see maybe a different part of town where that's much, you know, more like nice scenery that I'm driving by. Maybe it's taking me through by my old childhood neighborhood and I'm feeling nostalgic and it's actually quite nice to go this route. Maybe there's even less traffic. And so my old route, the road closure opens back up and I am so like, I have adapted so much to this new route that I don't even want to go the old route anymore. I prefer this one. Hmm. So I I talk about that to frame just how powerful I want people to feel empowered in whatever they're facing.
0: That's that's a really good story slash analogy there. Now, I got to ask you this, though, too, because I think you have... Some perspective here on this too. But what about the battle buddies? What do you tell those folks? The people like your parents or myself or even your husband, Mark?
1: I want to tell them that they are not, they are not alone. They they're going through this too. And sometimes I think those people kind of minimalize their own feelings and struggles. And because they think, well, I'm not. You know, I'm not the one who had a stroke or I'm not the one who had brain surgery. So like I should be happy and like this should be easy for me because I'm not the victim here. I don't like defining a victim because I feel like that trickles out so much. So I want the battle buddies to know that you are going through this too and you deserve support. You deserve to give yourself grace through this period.
0: Oh, there you are with the word grace. Grace. We speak to that a lot around here. So well done. Well played. We're getting close to closing down here, but there was something else that you wanted to speak to for a touch that you mentioned earlier in the program. You want to get after it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this just a few months ago at the university of Pittsburgh, I was the first person in the world to try out a spinal cord stimulator. Now, spinal cord stimulators have been around for decades for people with chronic pain. However, they are doing a clinical trial now to test it for stroke victims with arm and hand weakness. And I was first person to get this implanted And I had it, well, I had the temporary implant for the trial for four weeks and I went to their lab every day. I was moving my arm and hand in ways I haven't in almost 10 years now since my stroke. It doesn't, I don't want to make it seem like it makes it pre-stroke level, but it definitely helps. Mm -hmm. And I, who knows long-term use what it'll do because once you like, keep working the muscles or get them stronger. But I did get a permanent one put in, uh, in November, right before Thanksgiving. So I do have the permanent one now, but I wanted to let people know that, you know, university of Pittsburgh is still running the study. They are, I believe, still looking for participants with various, you know, different like strokes and ages and all that, just because they have to meet, you know, all the a diverse population. So that's something to consider. And also just like to mention about Andrew Jobling, if anybody out there is always thinking about writing a book, but doesn't know where to start or how to do it. I highly suggest even just connecting with Andrew and seeing how he could maybe be of use for you. Cause he's a wonderful person.
0: I will get that information from Heather and drop that in the show notes as well. For you folks out there who may be interested in exploring that Heather Tell us, what is the website name and address?
1: HeatherHeadstrong.com.
0: All right. Simple one there. I like it. Beautiful. So like I said earlier, when we are introducing Heather, I have a copy of her book. It's right here. Screenshot it. This episode, Take tag it. Lay it up on uh, your socials. Put in your stories. Tag us in it. First one that we see gets the book sent off to them after Terry and I are done reading it. We have lots of books here that we're trying to pass along, but first screenshot here after this episode comes out uh, and you're dropping your stories is the first person here in the state slash Canada that will get it sent off to them. Any final thoughts before we say goodbye for today, Heather?
1: No, I'm just so thankful to be on and I hope that you know, no matter what any of the listeners are facing, that they know that they can be headstrong through whatever they're going through too. And that to reach out to me, if anybody wants to throw me a note um, or needs words of encouragement, my email's heather at heatherheadstrong.com.
0: Thank you very much for that. Well, Heather, it was an awful pleasure speaking with you today. I wish Terry was here, but unfortunately, hey, it's what happens sometimes in this world as we know. And she couldn't be. But it was certainly a pleasure speaking with you today. And I really, really appreciate you and love the work that you're doing. And I really appreciate your positive spirit. That was very evident today in the conversation that we had. So you make sure that you take care of yourself. And no matter what happens, Heather, you make sure you keep battling. Notes and resources for this episode are available at aboutwithin.com backslash 161. Keep battling, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. Connect with us at abattlewithin.com and on Facebook and Instagram at abattlewithin. If you would like to be featured on the podcast or know someone that you think should be, please reach out to us in the same places I mentioned a second ago. You can also leave a voice message on our recorder on the homepage of the website if that's your preference. Got any ideas for episode topics? Reach out with those ideas as well. If you like what you're hearing and want to support the program, the best way to do that is to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't use it to listen as your platform. It helps us to get into more ears. Links to do so are in the episode notes. Be sure to check out our Battle Within swag shop on the website at battlewithin.com swag. Until next time, for those healing, show yourself some grace. For those who know someone healing, show them the same and give them a great deal of love. Keep battling, folks. Bye-bye.